We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And when we say God glorified, what we mean is that we exist for the purpose of seeing God receive praise, worship, honor, glory, credit, and fame. We believe that he is due. And so we want to spend our lives, our words, everything pointing back to Jesus. Right? It's why when you come here, we say our one desire is that when you leave here, that you'll marvel at Jesus more. that we chose the name Emmaus, the vision of our church is that we want to be a people who declare who Jesus is from all of the scriptures, that we talk about him, we proclaim him here in this pulpit, we do it in our kids ministry, through our songs, through our confessions, through the scriptures that we read, we do it with our neighbors and with our co-workers and with our children at home, that we are a people who declare who Jesus is and that as Jesus is being declared. Hearts are burning with the truth of who he is and eyes are being opened to believe it and there's faith being planted in the hearts of men and women. We want to see this transformation take place in people all across our city. That's what we're about. That's what we will spend ourselves on as long as God sees fit to leave a church called Emmaus in existence. Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of her sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Moab majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Um, members of Emmaus, I want to say good morning, particularly to you. I hope that you guys know that you are deeply loved by your pastors. And um, if you're visiting with us, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very glad that you're here. I hope you feel welcomed. I hope that um, you have been shown hospitality uh, by our members and, and by our leaders. And if you're interested in learning more about Emmaus and seeing what it looks like to uh, get plugged into our community, there is a connect table uh, out, out front in the lobby and you can get a coffee mug and get some information on how, uh, how you can get more involved with, with this church. I have a couple of things that I want to pray for in our uh, pastoral prayer this morning that um, are, I think, of particular import uh, in this season. First is for just the sexual sin that seems to mark not just this church, but this generation uh, and the marriages that it destroys. So I want to pray specifically for that. And uh, also want to pray for the unbelieving family members who are represented by the Christians here. 
This is particularly uh, prevalent during this season, the, the holiday season, when we're spending time with extended family and blood relatives. And uh, so often this season is sort of marked by a grieving when, we're, when we reflect on our family members that don't know Christ. So I want to pray for those two things specifically, and then I want to jump into our text this morning. So would you guys join me in prayer? Father God, this morning... We come to you with aching and grieving hearts. Many of your sons and daughters feel the shame and frustration and self-loathing of sexual sin. Collectively, as a church, we hate and grieve the presence of this sin. We hate what it does to the marriages represented, represented here these gospel parables that you intend to showcase the self-sacrificial love of Christ for his trusting, sanctified bride, Lord, they are often, far too often, marked by suspicion and mistrust and resentment and shame. We grieve for the husbands and wives that sit in the dark even now with shame and condemnation. We grieve for the husbands and wives that feel betrayed and belittled by their spouse's unfaithfulness. We confess our hatred for sexual sin and decry the wicked institutions that grow fat from feeding on the souls of men and women, the industries of pornography, sex trafficking, and all of their accomplices in the world of entertainment. Come, Lord Jesus, come and make all things new. Help us to confess our sins, repent of our sins, and live in freedom from their enslaving power. And help us to love one another well by pressing each other to the crucified life, the life that finds our justification in the finished work of Christ, and that also finds there all the motivation and power we need to live holy and self-controlled lives. Help us to be content in you. Father, we also grieve the many unbelieving family members of your children represented here. We love our blood relatives dearly. And to see them struggling, to see them trying to make sense of life apart from you, trying to satisfy their thirsts with muddy cisterns instead of the fount of living water. Father, when we see this, this breaks our hearts. Save our family members, please. Open the eyes of their heart to see the beauty of the gospel and bring them out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son. Work the miracle of regeneration in their lives. We know that you can do it. You have done it for us, and we beg you to do it for them as well. And now, Father, open our minds and hearts to receive your word. May we marvel at the incarnation this morning. And may, we, may you receive glory and honor as we receive the joy of worshiping you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, here we are. We have arrived once again at the season of Advent, where we anticipate the celebration of Christ's arrival and the incarnation. We have a unique opportunity to uh, reflect on this all-important doctrine, and it's, it's actually built right into our yearly calendar. 
Of course, the arrival of the word made flesh is a reality that should grip us always, right? I mean, we're Christians. It's crucial for our, for our lives as Christians throughout the year, not just during the month of December. Indeed, we marvel at the mystery of the incarnation year round. We don't need, we don't need a month of the year for that. And yet, there is something unique, I think, about building our calendar around the gospel story, uh, about the, the building our calendar around the, the redemption plan of God and placing ourselves in a state of expectation, right? That's what Advent is. We're placing ourselves in a state of, of expectation where we reflect on Jesus and his first coming and we and we anticipate and place ourselves in a state of longing for his return and his second coming. So that's where we are this morning. We, we are recounting the gospel story day by day, week by week, year by year, as we sit in this time between times, this, this time between the two advents of Christ. So here's my prayer for you in this season. My prayer is that this brief Advent series would help you to shake off all the familiarity of this Christmas season. I pray that as you walk through the, uh, the grocery stores and you hear Mariah Carey singing, a, th- a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, I pray that your instinct would be to fill in the lyrics that she leaves out of that song, right? Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His glory and power evermore proclaim. So that's, that's my prayer for you, that this brief Advent series would help you to worship this Christmas season. So for the next four weeks, we're going to cover different aspects of the incarnation, different aspects of what it means for, for the second person of the Trinity to become a human being. We're going to reflect on different aspects of that. So next week, Pastor jo- uh, Ronnie is going to preach on the incarnation as humility then Pastor Josh will preach on the incarnation as glory. And then Pastor Adam will, will end our Advent series after Christmas already, so we're kind of cheating. But um, he's going to end our Advent series with the sermon on the incarnation as salvation. Today, I'm going to preach a sermon on the incarnation as revelation. And I don't mean the, the, the book in the Bible, the last book in the Bible. I mean the incarnation as Revelation, the concept of God revealing himself to us through the incarnation. So with that said, let's jump right into our text. Uh, You should be there in your Bibles. Go ahead and turn there if you're not. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, before we move on, I I want us to pause and appreciate the significance of God speaking. Now, maybe you've never thought about this before, but this this is a staggering reality. We're talking about God, the eternal, all powerful, self sufficient, unchanging, infinite, holy one, the almighty, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And he speaks to his creatures personally. Now, if this isn't staggering to us, it's because our view of God is far too small. So so let me just take a minute to remind you how unfathomable God is. There is no bottom to him. 
I want to take a moment to remind you how limitless and incomprehensible this God is. I'm just going to read a smattering of verses from Isaiah chapter 40. This is just one chapter from one book of the Bible that gives us an idea of who it is we're dealing with here. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see. He's talking about the stars. Who created these? He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is who God is. Billions of stars and planets in the cosmos breathed out effortlessly by this one. He is holy, holy, holy. Which means that our knowledge of God is never comprehensive. We, never, we can never put our hands all the way around it. He is a subject that can never be mastered. He's a topic that can never be exhausted. So right out of the gate, our posture when it comes to knowing God is by necessity one of reception. We humbly drop to our knees and put out our hands and receive whatever it is he would give to us. And all of this means that in order for us to know anything about God, the initiative must come from him. If the gulf between the infinite and the finite is to be traversed at all, it must be traversed by him. And that's exactly what this word in Hebrews tells us he has done. God has taken the initiative to speak about himself. Despite the fact that we can never know God exhaustively, we can nevertheless know him truly because he truly reveals things to us about himself. And therein lies the staggering mystery of those two words in our passage. God spoke. Any revelation about God is a supreme act of grace whereby God stoops down to us. He condescends and accommodates his greatness for our tiny selves. But it gets so much better than that, okay? That was just the introduction to this sermon. It gets so much better than that because not only does he communicate himself to us with words and propositions, he has communicated himself to us with flesh and bones. Look at our passage again. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice, notice how the author of Hebrews identifies the incarnation, the, the arrival, the revelation of the Son. He identifies this act as part of the same revelation from God as those that he spoke to the prophets, or as those that he spoke to the fathers through the prophets. Same revelation, that is the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. In fact, not only is the incarnation a revelation from the same God who revealed himself in the Old Testament, it is the climax, it's the high point of that revelation. It's the climax of that, that revelation. That means that you have permission, if you're looking for the practical payoff, it means that you have permission, indeed the expectation to read your whole Bible, including the Old Testament, as a Christian book. It is a Christian book. You can and should read the Bible as a song with a steady rhythm of the Old Testament, driving with increasing intensity to the crescendo of the Gospels. You can look for Jesus in the Old Testament because he is there. He actually is there. You're not putting him there. He's there. This also means that we shouldn't forget how important the Old Testament is for understanding the work of Christ. The Old Testament is really important. Now, I stress this point because it's common to hear the Bible talked about as if the two Testaments, the Old and New Testament, are at odds with one another, right? And, and so you have the Old Testament over there, the New Testament over here. The Old Testament was for unbelieving Jews before Christ. The New Testament is for... Uh, Christians today, the Old Testament is Scripture technically, <laughs> right? The Old Testament is Scripture emeritus. And, and uh, this idea is conveyed in varying degrees of starkness, right? Everywhere from the simple neglect of the Old Testament, which we don't want to do. That's why our next book study is going to be the book of Nehemiah. We want to spend time in the Old Testament. So this idea is conveyed in, in varying degrees of starkness, everywhere from from the simple neglect of the Old Testament to public invitation from evangelical leaders to unhitch ourselves as Christians from the Old Testament. Just focus on the New Testament. Just focus on the resurrection. You need to know this. And you need to know that the human authors of the New Testament make no sense of the gospel without the Old Testament. They don't understand the, Old Te the, the, the New Testament. They, they don't understand the the incarnation or the life of Christ or the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. They don't understand the resurrection of Christ apart from the Old Testament. How many times in, in, our, in our series through uh, the, the, the Gospel of John, especially in the last several chapters of the crucifixion and the, the resurrection, did we read to fulfill the Scriptures? This happened to fulfill the Scriptures in fulfillment of this. that They didn't know about the Scriptures until the resurrection, all of these things. So, the, the Old Testament is crucial for our understanding of the New Testament. But the point in our passage today is that there is a continuity. The apex, the high point of God's revelation is Christ. He is God's revelation to man. 
So what happened in that manger all those years ago, right, that, that cute little scene that we talk about during this, this season, what happened in that manger all those years ago cannot be exaggerated. What happened there is the infinite divide between creator and creature was bridged in a person. That divide between the creator and the creature was bridged in the form of a fragile and needy baby. That event marked the beginning of a clarity to God's voice. We understand so much of the Old Testament now because of it, because of that event. So now for the rest of our time together, I'd like to invite you to just marvel with me at the incarnation of the Son of God. This mighty, infinite creator God that we've been trembling before all morning actually put on flesh and bones and walked around among us. He actually stepped into the time and space that he creates and sustains. He actually wrote himself into the story that he authored. He makes himself known to us, not just with propositions, but with flesh and bones. All right, so I have four points this morning. Four points for you note takers. Point number one, in the incarnation, Jesus reveals who God is. He reveals to us who God is. Look at verse two again. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Before the incarnation, God had revealed himself to be the creator God. That much had been established before the incarnation, right? He, he reveals himself as such through creation itself, right? So all of creation is testifying that there is a God that created it, right? That the heavens declare the glory of God, God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge, Psalm 19, so all of creation is, is bragging about being created by this creator God. And he spoke authoritatively about his creatorship through the scriptures, right? So we read in the scriptures that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this much has been established before the incarnation. God is the creator of everything. But in the incarnation, the story is deepened. And our knowledge of this creator God is expanded. In the incarnation, we learn that the Lord of all creation, in this passage, we learn that the Lord of all creation is none other than Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of the Father, who is one with the Father and the Spirit eternally. He is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, meaning when you see him, you see the Father's nature. When you see Jesus, you see what the Father is. You see God. So we read in Genesis how God spoke the universe into being out of nothing. We read all about that all throughout the Old Testament. He, he speaks and the universe exists. He speaks into nothing and then everything happens, right? But then we learn from the incarnation that this creative agency, this, this speaks, so the Father speaks and things come into existence. We learn that this creative agency, this speaking thing, is actually a divine person. 
It's the son. That was the son bringing all of that everything out of nothing. This is testified by Paul in Colossians 1. He says, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's everything, okay? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, Jesus Christ, in him, all things hold together. Didn't we learn this very thing from our previous study through the the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the capital W word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not made. Anything made that was made. How do we know this? How how do we come to know that the creator God is actually triune? Who exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we come to know In other words, that the creative power of the Father is a personal word. How do we come to know that? We come to know that when that personal word puts on flesh and walks around among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is why Jesus can say to Philip with a straight face, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And why Paul can say that the face in the face of Jesus Christ, we have knowledge of the glory of God. In the incarnation, Jesus reveals to us who God is. He translates God into human language and flesh and bones. So that's our first point. In the incarnation, Jesus reveals who God is. Point number two, in the incarnation, Jesus reveals what God does. Look at that second part of verse three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In the incarnation, Jesus reveals to us who God is by revealing what God does in the plan of redemption, in his work of redemption. This is actually what the incarnation is. It is the Trinity setting into motion the work of redemption, a divine rescue mission. It is a triune conspiracy of deliverance. And at no point in this whole event do the persons of the Trinity act separately or independently from one another. This is exactly what was the theme of our our study through the Gospel of John. This is why Jesus kept on saying, I've been sent from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. That's where I came from, that's where I'm going. This big U shape of, of the Gospel of John. It's the Father sending the Son by the power of the Spirit to win a flock for himself, to gather up a people for himself. And he purchases those people when he lives a perfect life on their behalf, and then he dies a sacrificial death to pay for the penalty of their sins and purchase them. Okay, so he he comes down, he buys a people for himself, and then he says, hold on one second, I'm I'm going to get you, but first I got to go back up to the Father and then send the Spirit to go apply all of this work of redemption that he's accomplished. 
That is what the incarnation exists for. It is God winning a people for himself. All of this is why the son became incarnate. The word became flesh to complete the Trinity's mission of redemption. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why? Why did he sit down? Because he was done. (laughs) He had completed his mission. He had done what, with his single offering, the offering of himself, he had done what the endless sacrifices of the Old Testament priests could never do. He made actual purification for sins. This is what God does. Not only does he create the cosmos, right? He breathes the billions of stars out effortlessly. Not only does he create the cosmos, and not only does he sustain them, right? Your heart just beat again and again and again and again because Jesus told it to. So not only does God create the cosmos, not only does he sustain the cosmos, but he redeems his creation, He redeems his people. He covers their sin. This is the end of the incarnation. The reason he put on flesh and bones was to redeem a people for himself, for his own glory, by accomplishing the work of redemption. Now, let me just say as an aside, what what does that tell you about your prayer life? It tells you that this is a God you can trust. He is a God who went to extraordinary measures, scandalous measures to bring you to himself. The incarnation reveals, in other words, that God is a God who loves his creation. And in the person and work of Jesus, he actually has skin in the game. All right, point number three. So we looked at God, Jesus revealing in the the incarnation who God is. We've looked at what he does And our third point is that in the incarnation, Jesus reveals to us our need. Pastor Ronnie will go into this point with much more detail next week, so I'll try not to steal too much of his thunder here. But I do want you to notice that God not only reveals much to us in the fact of the incarnation, he also reveals a lot to us in the manner of the incarnation. In the incarnation, Christ came to us in humility. He came low. He came so low, in fact, that if you're standing with a puffed up chest, you have to stoop to receive him. The entire event of the incarnation, and I'm talking about the whole ministry of Christ here on earth, the entire event from the beginning of his life to his death on the cross to his resurrection and ascension, the entire event of Christ's incarnation is marked by one example of degradation and humility after another. He degrades himself. He, the God-man, is born to a young virgin in a small hick town. His, His birth is the occasion for a lifetime of slander for Mary, the unmarried teen mom. All right, you can say whatever you want about how how primitive first century Palestine was, they knew that virgins don't get pregnant. They knew that much, okay? So his birth marked, was the occasion of a lifetime of slander for Mary. His first cradle was an animal's slop bucket. That's where the eternal son of God slept for the first time 
in his human nature was in an animal's slot bucket, a feeding trough. Then all of heaven came to announce the most important event in all of human history to men who were of some of the most despised classes in Roman society, smelly shepherds, the kind of people that no one would listen to. No one, no one is stopping, uh, stopping uh, the, in their tracks to hear what the shepherds have to say. If they say, hey, I have an announcement, nobody is stopping to pay attention to them. And yet, heaven designates the most obscure and insignificant people to serve as hype men for the Messiah. Those are the people that the angels reveal that the Son of Man is being born to. And then in his life, God the Son chooses country bumpkins and mobsters and prostitutes to be his followers during his earthly ministry. And then he defeats Satan, sin, and death, right? So victory. How does he do it? He defeats Satan, sin, and death by dying on a cross, naked and shamed like a common criminal. He's, he's a conqueror who conquers by being conquered. And then the first witnesses of the resurrection, even in the resurrection, you can't help but be counterintuitive. The first witnesses of the resurrection are women whose testimony in those days were so useless they couldn't even be admitted into the court of law as evidence. Now, why do I focus on the counterintuitive meekness of the gospel? Simply this, the incarnation reveals that our situation is much more dire than we realize. In the infinite wisdom of God, he has contrived a gospel message that none of us could rightly embrace with a prideful attitude. He has contrived a gospel message that we have to stoop down from our prideful self-sufficiency to lay hold of, to, lay, to, to throw all of our hopes on a Savior who is weak and fragile. The incarnation says to all of us, this is what the incarnation says to all of us. Look, you, you see that, that weak little baby in a feeding trough? That's how needy you are. You are so needy, you need a slot bucket Savior. You are so, your sin is so wretched that you need the Son of God to become a human to die a gruesome death to atone for it. That's how wretched your sin is. You are so doomed that the only way for God to turn aside his burning anger from you is to take it upon himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You are so hopeless at obeying God that God himself obeys for you. In the person and work of Jesus, you are so helpless to know and worship God that the Son of God becomes one of you so that you might know him and worship him that way. He stoops down to make himself available to you because you are so unable to climb up to him. The incarnation reveals to us our need, which brings me to our, to our last point. In the incarnation, Jesus reveals our provision. In the incarnation, Christ reveals the severity of our need by providing what is necessary to meet that need. He shows us how needy we are by meeting our needs. And he meets our needs as our mediator who stands between us and God. He brokers peace between us and God. That's what it means for him to be a mediator. He stands between us. His role as mediator works on several levels. First of all is as we've already talked about, he mediates our knowledge of God. 
But also, and crucially, he mediates peace with God. This is 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 7. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is Christ's priestly work whereby he stands as a representative of man, as a man before God. He stands as our representative before God, offering on our behalf his blood sacrifice to atone for our sins and perfect worship and obedience that we could never offer God. So he stands as our representative and he says, here's my life. The perfect obedience as a representative of all these folks behind me, they can't do it themselves, so I'll do it for them. I'm the representative, and here's my, my blood sacrifice to atone for all of their sins. So he stands before God as our representative, and he stands as a representative of God before man. And he communicates everything that the Father wants him to communicate. Again, the Gospel of John is replete with this. Jesus saying, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the Father. I'm not saying these things on my own authority. I'm saying these things on the Father's. So his body, his body in the incarnation becomes a bridge that covers the chasm of our sin and the wrath of God. This is why the author of Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 7, for it, is, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those other priests talking about the Old Testament Levite priests. He has no need like those other priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this for all when he offered himself, when he offered up himself. But it gets even better than this, right? So you guys are probably used to hearing those two aspects of Christ's mediation. We talk about that. He mediates the knowledge of God. He mediates our peace with God, but he even mediates our worship of God. Let me read to you a passage from church father named Athanasius. He says this brilliantly. He says, for since human beings, that's us, right? For since human beings, having rejected contemplation of God and as though sunk in an abyss with their eyes held downward, seeking God and creation and things perceptible, setting up for themselves mortal humans and demons as gods. For this reason, the lover of human beings and the common savior of all takes to himself a body and dwells as human among humans and draws to himself the perceptible senses of all human beings so that those who think that God is in things corporeal, the, the created things, might from what the Lord wrought through the actions of the body know the truth and through him might consider the Father. What is he saying? What is Athanasius saying? He's saying that God, recognizing our inability to lift up our gaze from creation to heaven, our inability to lift up our gaze from creation to heaven, came down from heaven to creation to stand at our eye level. He's saying since human beings couldn't seem to stop worshiping creation instead of the creator, they couldn't seem to stop worshiping creatures. The creator became a creature 
to accommodate their limitations. This is what I do when I need to get at my son's level and he's preoccupied with making a mess on the ground. What do I do? I stoop down and get on the ground. I put myself, I put my eyes at his eye level so that he can see me. And that's what God does for us in the incarnation. He stoops down and makes himself available to us. In this way, he becomes intelligible enough for us to worship him. This is why the disciples are not committing idolatry when they're worshiping him in the Gospels. This human being, this this man from Nazareth, the carpenter, they're worshiping him and they're not committing idolatry. We can set this human being as the object of our worship and offer all of our praise to him without the fear of dishonoring God precisely because he is no mere human. He himself is God and he has become a man in order to accommodate our limitations. We couldn't reach up to the top shelf to get to God. So God places himself on the bottom shelf for us right where we can reach, right within our reach, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that that carpenter from Nazareth, that human being who is God. (laughs) Now, this is really important because the incarnation is an ongoing reality. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but the second person of the Trinity is and will forever be the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because we will always and forever be in need of that kind of accommodation. In the incarnation, God has provided our needs. And our need is a God-man. This is is why I don't feel bad at all for trying to stir your affections for hoping for a physical Jesus to hug. That's what I want. That's okay for us to want that. Now, as we close our time together, I want to offer the following charge. Approach Jesus by faith and worship him. Approach him by faith and worship him. This is your charge, whether you are a Christian or not. If you are not a Christian, know that you are hopeless apart from this person. You cannot know God apart from him. Listen, I'm going to say something that that may be jarring. If you're not a Christian... Whatever your notion of God is, whatever your notion of God is, if it does not arrive to you through your acquaintance with Jesus, it is wrong. Whatever your notion of God is, if it doesn't arrive to you through your acquaintance with Jesus, it is wrong. You cannot know God apart from him. Jesus himself said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father apart from me. So if you're not a Christian this morning, you need to know that you do not stand before God as a neutral party. There is no such thing as neutrality before God. So this is the charge. Don't argue with his assessment of your need. In the incarnation, in the arrival of the eternal son of God in the form of a fragile baby who would grow up to live a humble life and die a brutal death on the cross and be raised three days later, and ascended up to the right hand of the Father. In that event, God contradicts all of your notions of self-sufficiency. He is telling you that you are a hopeless failure. Isn't that great news? 
for those of us who have the awareness to actually recognize we are hopeless failures, in the incarnation, God is telling you, you are a hopeless failure. He is telling you that your sins are such a stench to his holy nostrils that only the blood of a God-man could atone for them. He is telling you that your best attempts at righteousness are so worthless, they're actually making things worse. And he tells you to step aside so he can roll up his sleeves and do it himself. So you're just making this way, way worse. Let me do this for you. In the incarnation, God is revealing to you your need. But in the incarnation, he is also telling you that he loves you enough to provide for your need. In fact, he loves you so much that he places this provision of himself right on the bottom shelf for you. So this is your charge. Come to Jesus by faith, your bottom shelf provision, and worship him. And the same is true for you, Christian. You will never stop needing Jesus. You will never stop needing this mediator who mediates peace with God and knowledge of God and worship of God. You will never stop needing him. So my charge to you is very much the same. You won't move beyond him, so continually come to him by faith and worship. Okay, how do you do this? If you're looking for a practical assignment, saying, Pastor Sam, all of your charges are always the same. They're behold Jesus, come to Jesus by faith, love Jesus. Give me something practical. All the type A personalities are saying, Give me something to do. Okay, I'm going to give you one for a change. I'm going to give you one. Come to Jesus by faith and worship him. How do you do this? Read your Bibles. Read them. Read your Bibles in prayer, in conversation with God. Read them slowly. Savor the words. Look for Jesus in the words. Because listen, you cannot know God apart from his incarnate word, apart from the, the person and work of Jesus, but you can't know the incarnate word apart from his inscripturated word. You, Christian, living in the 21st century, 2,000 years after Jesus has physically ascended to heaven, can't get to know this man apart from this book. So come to him through this book. He has made himself known here in the Bible, which, real quick, let me just give you this plug. Did you know that you guys have a member here, a, a pastoral resident who is so passionate about raising biblical literacy in the church of Jesus Christ that he has spearheaded an initiative called Feasting on the Word. It's a weekly resource that we put out every Friday to help you read the Bible. It helps you put together the, the grand story of the Bible. It helps you understand how to read different genres of the Bible. So avail yourself to that resource because listen, you cannot expect to have deep intimacy with Jesus apart from his word. You can't expect to have profound appreciation for the incarnation and to have abiding communion with Jesus if you are not seeking him out in his word. So listen, this, this charge, therefore, is not a public scolding. Okay, if you're, if you're taking it that way, let me just put that to rest. It's not a public scolding. It's an invitation to increase your intimacy with Christ. God has not left himself without a revelation of himself. He has, you don't have to fret and worry what God is like. Try to figure out what God is like. He's told you what he's like in his word. You don't have to fret to try to figure out how to have 
communion with him, how to know Jesus better. He's told you how to get to know him better. Get to know him better in his word. He's not left himself without a revelation. You really can have fellowship with God. You really can spend time with Jesus, and you can do so right here in this book. Now, this, this fellowship with God is precisely what we celebrate in this meal of communion. Every week, we're celebrating that fellowship that we have with God. This meal testifies, this meal testifies that the Son of God actually became a man. The Word actually became flesh and dwelt among us. This meal testifies to the reality of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and it proclaims by faith his return. That's what every time we take from this bread, we can be praying, God, I believe, help my unbelief, you will return. You will return. Our peace with one another and our peace with God, the peace that's signified in this meal, our fellowship with Christ is as real as this bread and juice your body will digest. It's not a mindset. We're not putting ourselves in a mindset. It was secured and concretized in time and space. That's why, we're, that's why we're, when we take communion as Christians, we don't say, okay, let's, let's visualize together taking a piece of bread. Let's visualize together juice. No, we don't do that because Christ actually came in the flesh. So our peace with Christ is as real as this, as this bread and juice that we're digesting. So if you're a Christian, come and enjoy your fellowship with Jesus. That's what you're doing when you're taking this meal. You're enjoying your fellowship with Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, this meal, because of that, it would be a lie. So please don't take it. This, this meal does not create, you need to know this because, because a lot of times the, the way that we treat uh, communion can communicate this false idea that taking communion creates this relationship with Christ and with the people of God. It's not true. It doesn't create a relationship with God or the people of God that doesn't already exist. Our invitation to you, therefore, if you're not a Christian, is to remain in your seat and receive the person and work of Christ, which is the substance that this meal signifies. If you have any questions about what it means to become a Christian, I would invite you to ask anyone who stands up and takes this meal. I'm going to pray and have the believers in the room come down to my right to, to your right, my left side, take from the, the bread and the cup and return to my right side here to your seat that way. Let's pray. Holy Trinity, we thank you for the mystery of the incarnation. We pray that you would save and sanctify and encourage and convict all according to your wisdom. Water the hearts of those who heard thy word that seed sown in weakness, my weakness, may be raised in your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.